Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's gritty. It's industrial. It's, it's lived in. Um, it hasn't always been loved. Um, we're rediscovering it. Um, it's been ignored for a long time. It needs to be rediscovered. It needs to be loved. It, we need to be proud of it. It is London. Thames is London. London's only there because of the Thames. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 75 with Lara Makelum. Lara is a mudlark. For those of you who don't know what that is, you'll find out in this episode. For those who do, you'll understand how eclectic and esoteric a hobby it really is. Lara spends hours searching the Thames foreshore for items left behind by the river from the past 2,000 years. She never uses a metal detector, and instead patiently hunts for what the river chooses to reveal. This includes discarded engagement rings, a glass eye, and even a Tudor shoe. In this episode, Lara talks about her fascination with these objects, the indescribable excitement of finding items which link us to the past, and the human connection they bring. Before we begin, I'd like to point you towards the Martin Moran Foundation, our charitable partner. They're an incredible organisation that enable people to get out in the hills, the mountains, and to find and live a life of adventure. It's an initiative very close to my heart, and I'd be incredibly grateful to those of you who are able to support their work. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us an honest review and a rating on iTunes, if that's where you're listening. These reviews help us with visibility, which in turn brings more people into the adventure fold. Finally, the podcast is produced alongside Sidetrack Magazine, our spiritual sister publication, for a written and photographic adventure fix to go alongside your auditory stories, head to sidetrack.com. I guess it would be a really um, good way to start by you just introducing yourself, talking about who you are, and maybe explaining mudlarking and what it is. Okay, my name's Laura Maiklam. I am, well, I mudlark for a hobby, and I've recently written a book about it. I'm writing another book. I have another book out this year. So I suppose I've become, by default, a writer. And so I'm a writer and a mudlark. My background is publishing. That's what I've always done. Um, but I, well, I suppose apart from the writing, I haven't really done much publishing for a little while. And so mudlarking is, is basically searching for history. It's going down onto the Thames foreshore at low tides. The, the Thames is tidal, so it goes up and down twice a day. And when you go down onto the foreshore, when the, when the river's gone out, you can look around for all the objects that have been lost or dropped or forgotten or thrown away. Uh, stretching back 2,000 years plus. It's an obsessive hobby because you never know what you're going to find next. Every tide delivers something new. Now, uh, it's important to say I'm not a metal detectorist. I'm a very different beast to that. I only collect what's left on the surface. I collect what the rivers decided to leave on that tide and I don't disturb the surface at all. And that, I think, is a really important part of what I do. It's, I, I take a more holistic approach to it. I'm not looking for treasures. I'm not definitely not a treasure hunter. Part of what I do is, is, is finding out what, what, the, what the river's released, what it's chosen to give me, uh, what clues it's given me to the past and to people who uh, have vanished and, and all they've left behind is, is maybe something that they didn't want anymore or something that they were very upset that they lost. That's amazing. Okay. Well, God, there's a thousand threads to run with there. Um, so <laughs> does this stem from childhood? Are you from London? 
It does. I mean, I, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up on a farm, a dairy farm, just outside London, actually. Only, uh, I think it's four, 30 or 40 miles as the crow flies to uh, Westminster. Uh, so I grew up in a, a strange sort of other world of, of countryside and um, and being near the city. My, my mother's family are, are definitely Londoners. And my father's family are all farmers as far back as anybody can remember and further back into the mists of time when people started farming, I think. Um, so I come from this strange sort of pedigree of, of town and city. And uh, the farm was at the end of this long winding uh, concrete road in, in a valley, very much sort of on its own, surrounded by housing estates and um, airports and the London to Brighton Railway and the M25. So we were surrounded by everything and yet there was nothing there. And when you were a, a teenager and you can't drive and you can't get out, I, I was felt very trapped. Um, and as a young child, I spent a lot of time on my own. Um, I've got older brothers. They were sent to boarding school and uh, I spent a lot of time on my own with the dog rambling around on the farm and uh the, the farmhouse was very very old it's a it's a tudor farmhouse so i grew up surrounded by history and nature and uh i was quite a an introverted very shy child and i i found my solace in just sort of poking around i suppose looking for things um so i'd spend hours just looking in the garden beds in the fields in the hedgerows uh, looking for birds' nests. There was a river that ran through the farm that I'd spend hours and hours with my with my net dipping away, looking for these poor creatures that I'd pull out again and again. Um, and so, yeah, I've always had a keen eye. I've always liked. I've always I've always searched for the detail, I suppose, and 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 found my interest lies sort of lying there. Why do you think that was? What were you doing consciously, subconsciously, maybe? I was I was a dreamer. I still am a dreamer. I was a, look at my school reports. Everything says I I never concentrated on anything. I just spent my life in a dream world, and uh, it was an, it was I suppose it was my my own little sort of story, fantasies, dream world. I had my own little museum in the barn. It was an old chest of drawers, and I I was yeah like I was a, I suppose I was a bit of an odd child. I collected sort of skulls. I had an old tortoise that I found in the field that had obviously run away from someone and died and I found its shell. Um, and they're fascinating because you can see the backbone inside. Um, so that went in the museum. Um, my One of my uncles had a farm on chalk. So every time the plough went over, you, you could go and pick up all the uh, sea urchin fossils. So we'd go and pick up those. Um, we, we had a plague vidget village at the top of the farm where... Um, when the plough went through that, all the pottery and all the remnants of that would come up during the plague. Um, so many people died that villages were just abandoned, and uh, you can you can sometimes see from from the air you can see the marks and crop marks in the fields. And uh, we had one on the farm. Uh, there was another part of the farm where there was an old farmhouse that got knocked down during the war. It was near near an aerodrome, so they had to knock it down so that the the planes could come and go. And if you went up there when they ploughed through it, you could find bits and pieces up there too. Um, so I learned all the places you could go to find find stuff. Um, and along the way, I'd pick up, you know, feathers and snake skins and tortoise shells and um, all sorts of strange things. I mean, my mother is a great a collector of, of odd things and likes unusual things. I think she probably got me into it. We also spent a lot of time, well, I got to spend, spent a lot of time being dragged around antique fairs when I was young with my mother um, which I, I used to get quite bored but actually I found uh, you know I, I, I started to enjoy those you know sort of it, it's the junky things it's the junky things I like not the fine antiques and stuff like that it's just just the weird stuff and the junky stuff and the things that people don't want anymore and things that are worn out or, or broken or reused that's the stuff that interests me. So, yeah, I've, I've had a fascination for history and for finding things that don't fit, I suppose. When you go for a walk and you see thing, something that just doesn't quite fit into where it is, whether it's a, a stone that's just a strange shape or um, it's a, you know, a piece of pottery, bright blue and white pottery that's coming out of some dark brown mud. It just doesn't fit. It stands out. And, and those are the things I like to collect. Did you know that it was the kind of the things that didn't fit when you were younger? Did you realise that it was the, the human connection rather than the natural history, maybe? 
yes, I think so. We had a midden in the garden, and you know, that, that I'd spend hours digging through that for the for the thing. There's something about the human connection. There's something about that, and I think a lot of people who 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 do what I do and also metal detect will say the same thing. It's that moment you pick something up, knowing that you're the first person to touch it since the last person lost or dropped it. It's it's that moment of reaching back through time that is really, really almost indescribably exciting for me. You know, and, and even so much as, you know, as I say, I grew up on a very, very old house You'd with marks that have been carved into the beams and, and initials that have been scratched into the walls and just running your fingers over those and thinking about the person who you can never find out really who did it. But the moment that they did it, it's that moment in time when something was lost or broken or scratched into into a wall that that is, I think maybe is my fascination. It's moments in time and a, and a human connection with things. So what did you do when it came time to leave the farm? Well, I I mean by the time it was ready, to, I was ready to leave the farm. I had enough. I just wanted to get away. Um, you know, like so many people do, especially people who grow up in the countryside. Uh, you know, you just want to escape, don't you? You want to leave home. And uh, I went to Newcastle University, as far away from home as I could get, and um, <laughs> and um, spent three years up there. And just wanted to move to London. After that, you know, I I I just wanted to get to London. I wanted to have some fun. Um, I wanted the bright lights. I wanted to, you know, just just be in London. London's an amazing place. I absolutely love London. Um, you know, like I say, I'm a child of two places. I love the countryside. I really do love being surrounded by nature, um, hands in the dirt. But London's so special. Um, so I moved to London and um, threw myself at it with with literally gay abandon. Um, <laughs> uh, spent a lot of time in in nightclubs and um, yep, doing all sorts of things I probably shouldn't have done. And um, <laughs> made some good friends, but I was also craving the countryside. In a, in a way, I almost started to feel a bit oddly, not guilty, but yeah, I suppose guilty. I suppose um, uncomfortable about, well, I don't know if uncomfortable is the right word. I, I miss the countryside. I miss the simplicity of it and the, um, the, 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 the innocence of it, I suppose. That's what I missed. It was the innocence of, of, of nature and the countryside. And so I, I, I started to look for it in the city. And that took me to parks and up to Hampstead Heath and into, you know, Regent's Park and grotty little parks near where I lived in Hackney. And um, I just couldn't find it, you know. There were just too many people. It was too manicured. It was too sort of seedy. And then one day I found myself down by the river. And the river is a strange place in London. It was, it's, it, it's kind of ignored. It is London. If you look at London from space, that's what you see. You see the river. Um, when you live in London, it's just something annoying you have to get across or something that you don't, a lot of people don't notice. Um, and I hadn't noticed it. I hadn't even thought about it. And I found myself down by it. And I realized there was so much raw natural power down there. There was this sort of wide, thick, powerful stretch of water that was bringing nature right into the center of the city, changing all the time. It changed. It was going up and down and moving out and moving back in again. And, you know, just, just staring at it, I thought, this is, this is it. This is where I need to be. And so for, for, for a long, the longest time, I, I just walked by it. I, I'd go there when I needed some space. I needed just to get away from people and things and, and, and stuff. And I'd walk beside it, and it was a great, um, very restorative place to be. And uh, you can walk for miles along the Thames paths. And then oh, one day I was standing at the top of some of the river stairs, and the tide was out, and I was looking at the foreshore. And I, it did occur to, I thought, yes, it, it goes out. There's no reason why I can't go down there. Uh, for some reason, again, like lots of people, I thought you weren't allowed down there. It was just out of bounds. You just, it was something, you know, someone's going to yell at you, tell you to get off. And so I went down and um, that's when I found the first thing that got me into mud barking and it was a piece of clay pipe stem. And I knew what it was because I'd found them in the garden at home. 
Um, and I looked around and I saw lots and lots more. And I thought, well, if there's this many clay pipe stems here, then there's got to be other stuff. And so I started going back at low tide onto the foreshore and I started finding more and more things. And it piqued my imagination and my interest. And I started reading about the things I was finding and reading a bit more about history and learning more and finding more. And, uh, and then I just found myself going there a lot. Um, it helped that I moved to Greenwich, just a five minute walk from, from, the, from the river. So it just made sense to go there. Yeah, I mean, when I was in Greenwich, I don't, don't live in Greenwich anymore. I was sometimes going down on two tides a day when I could. So it really took it when I should have been working. And yeah, it, it, it got quite addictive. It's seen me through some, some difficult times in my life. Um, it's been the place I've gone to. I, th- I think the river probably knows more about my problems than anyone else. Um, more about probably more about me than anyone else. I talk to it as I mudlark. We chat to each other. Um, I thank it when it gives me something good. <laughs> I ask for things when I haven't found much for a while, um, and I talk to it. It's uh, it's got me through some difficult times. You're not really supposed to ask this question. I think when people say they talk out loud when there's no other human being present. Why do you talk to it? Really, why do you talk to it? It's ther- I suppose it's therapy. You know, I've I've never seen a ther- I've never felt the need to go to a therapist. Um, and I suppose that's what people do when when they go to a therapist, don't they? I mean, I've heard that that's what therapists do. They're just very quiet and they let you talk. I'd, I've never been to one, but that's what the river does. It's an incredibly patient place. It has this really patient aura about it. Um, you know, it's been going in and out and up and down for forever you know long before we were here we've we've done all sorts to it we've 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 tamed it we've pushed it into this narrow channel it's not supposed to be in you know we've forced it behind barriers we've we've you know put locks across it and it keeps on flowing and we've poisoned it we've done awful things to it and it's put up with us and it'll be here long after we've screwed everything up and gone It'll still be going up and down and flowing in and out. And it does give off this this patient, very powerful patient aura. And um, it just, you just feel like you can talk to it, I suppose. It's very quiet down there. There's no one there to hear you. And you feel you can mutter away to it as you sort of stare at the mud. And it, it chatters back, you know. It's got this sort of the, the waves um, constantly lapping on the foreshore. Um, it makes little swirly noises it does chatter back to you and sometimes all you need is just something or someone to listen don't you and you can sort out your problems yeah isn't that the truth um so can you describe it to me from a sensory perspective and aesthetic what's it like down there uh it changes very much with the seasons it depends when you go down if you go down on a hot summer day it stinks you know it's that real sort of sort of almost sort of meaty rivery smell um it, it it changes with what's going in it you know at the moment we've got lots of rain and we've had lots of sewage they let the sewage out into it so what, what happens is the, the the rainwater goes into the old victorian sewage system in london it can't cope and if they don't let it out into the river then uh, it'll all back up and go into people's houses and into the streets so they have to let it out and it absolutely stinks and it's disgusting and that's why i wear gloves and I've got quite sick from it, probably. So after a sewage spill, it's revolting. On a spring day, it's it smells of life. It smells of new life. Um, it, you know, in, in the autumn, it can smell like rotten leaves. You know, it's not death. Death is when the, when the fatbergs, bits of fatberg break off and you find those on the foreshore and tread in one. Um, that smells disgusting. Um, you know, and, and then when it's cold, you can almost, you can smell the sea. When it's cold, particularly, you can smell this sort of salty tang. Um, it smells of cold, frozen stone. It's it changes. It changes daily. It changes with the season. One of the things I love about it most is the smell of the river. Um, during during lockdown, the smell left the river. It came up into the streets um, because there weren't any other smells in London. The pollution was gone. The smells of cooking um, uh, of people. The smells we make had gone and, and the river came back up into the streets again. Um, and you could smell it from the bridges and the alleyways. It's, it's definitely a smell. It's a, it's a t- smell of time. I think I can imagine London smelt like that hundreds of years ago. You could smell the river a lot more. 
especially when old London Bridge was pouring through, you know, and churning up. You can imagine the smell if you lived on top of the bridge constantly, that sort of wet river, damp, lovely river. I love the smell of the river, not after a sewage spell, but uh, generally I love the smell of the river just because it changes all the time. That river or rivers? Rivers. Uh, rivers do smell, um, but, but the Thames has a specific smell. It also dis- depends which part of the river you're going to. If, you, if you're going out onto the Isle of Dogs where they made a lot of the uh, metal ships, there's a lot of rust in the, in, the, in the foreshore. The foreshore, some places, is just made of rust, and it smells of iron. You can smell the ships still. Um, there's a part of the foreshore where there's a big sort of blob of tar that's just spread across the foreshore. Uh, it was in front of where there was an old ship. Uh, ship breaker and uh when it's hot and the task just gets a bit soft you can you can smell the old old uh sailing ships you know there's these smells that just bring back senses of the past i was gonna say it's a very romantic idea and a very romantic notion i mean is it always mostly i find it a very romantic place to go Yes, I'd say it is, actually. It's a unique, it's absolutely unique. There's nowhere else in the world like the Thames. Um, you know, it's, I'm quite sure that if the Seine was tidal and you could get down onto it, it would, you'd find the same sort of stuff, but I don't think it would have the same kind of grittiness as, as the Thames does. It's a dirty old Thames. It's a dirty old river. It's gritty. It's industrial. It's, it's lived in. Um, it hasn't always been loved. Um, we're rediscovering it. Um, it's been ignored for a long time. It needs to be rediscovered. And it needs to be loved. It, we need to be proud of it. It is London. Thames is London. London's only there because of the Thames. The Romans wouldn't have um, wouldn't have established Londinium, which was a trading post, without the Thames. Um, and so, you know, we sh- as Londoners, we should be proud of the Thames. And we should look after it. Yes, maybe slightly better than we do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, they're building the Tideway Tunnel, which will take away the the um, the sewage, which will make a huge difference. And if you think in the 1950s, we killed it. Um, there wasn't a living thing between Gravesend and Vauxhall. Since then, uh, you know, there's now, I think, 250 species of fish. There's l- lobsters coming back in the estuary, oysters, it's made a remarkable recovery. So it, it just shows its resilience. Um, so, you know, we, you know, it is, I've seen, I've seen, you know, harbour porpoises up under Millennium Bridge, uh, obviously whales, but the whales that come up the Thames are usually sick or lost, you know, for a reason. Um, they shouldn't be in the river. But, you know, there's so much life, there's so much life in the Thames and, and there, there will be more. Do you see other people down there? Yes. Yes. Well, it depends where you go. Um, you know, obviously, central London um, is busy on a, on, a, on a nice warm day on a Saturday in the summer. It'll be quite busy. Uh, if you go further out on a cold, rainy day, you won't see anyone. You can walk for miles and see nobody. Um, so you do see other people. But given the millions of people that live in London, really, you don't see that many people. It's, it can be quite deserted. Um, so more people are discovering the river, which I think is fantastic. It is a sh- it's a shared resource. It belongs to the city. It doesn't belong to any single person or group. Um, <clears throat> and I think people can learn a huge amount from being down there. Uh, a lot of people I meet, um, regulars, almost everyone goes there for a reason. Everyone's got a reason to be there. They're, they're, there are people who are re- recovering from illness. There are people who, who are grieving people who have mental health issues. It, it's, it's a great place to go for a cure, whether it's physical or mental. Um, and I think, it, it, I, I think that should be open to everybody. I was going to drift into the world of logistics, but I have one more woolly question for us first, which is why do you think that the river is a great place to go for a cure? Why do people flock there? There's something about water, isn't there? I mean, water is, is, you know, people go to spas, spa towns, spas. People go to water. It has a calming effect. They've, they've proved that being by the sea releases some kind of, I, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, endorphin or, or, or 
something that actually calms you down. And I think being beside water, particularly flowing water, is, is quite primitive. We're drawn to it. We're drawn to it like we're drawn to fire. Um, you know, we, we are mainly made up of water, aren't we? You know, there's something that connects us with water. Um, I find a lot of objects that have been discarded by people for a reason, things they want to get rid of. So I think the fact that it's flowing, the fact that it's moving, there's that sense that it takes away your problems. It takes away what you don't want anymore. We find um, wedding rings and engagement rings under bridges. People throw them in, um, torn up photographs, love letters. Um, people write, I've found letters that people have written, um, put in bottles and thrown in the river. It's almost as if they're casting their demons. They're getting rid of something. So I think it ha does have that calming, uh, very um, therapeutic effect being beside river, but it also has that sense of, of you can get rid of something you don't want anymore from beside it, which I suppose goes back to why I talk to it. So what is in the literal sense, um, and I'm talking here, you know, kind of thematically, logistically, legally, what is a mudlark and what separates a mudlark from me wandering along the coast looking for clay pipes and dead crabs? A mudlark, I would say, is um, somebody who searches rivers. It doesn't have to be the Thames. Anyone who searches mud, um, and usually rivers are muddy. So mudlarks, the word mudlark is a, quite an old word. It was first written down at the end of the 1700s. And it described really the lowest of the low, the sort of uh, the, the criminal element, I suppose, on the river and the urchins who just all they could do was scavenge to survive. I think there's probably been river scavengers forever, ever since there's been people desperate enough to, to search the mud of the rivers. Um, but it was first written down at the end of the 1700s. And uh, these were the people who took the objects that were thrown off the ships by the criminals that went on board to steal. And they picked them up from the, from the mud and took them off to the um, taverns in Rotherhide and Wapping to be fenced on further. Um, and then by the Victorian times, it, it was a word that referred to mainly children that, that would splash around in the mud looking for anything they could sell or use. And it's just something that's been appropriated by modern day river searchers, um, sort of amateur Archaeologists, I don't know if I want to use that word because I'm not an archaeologist. I, I can't lay claim to that. Um, just amateur river hunters. And so it's a word that we've appropriated. Obviously, we don't have to thankfully do it to, to put food on our plates. Uh, we do it out of interest. Um, so mudlark is, uh, mud, is an old word. Um, and it's a word, I suppose, I've appropriated the word larking to looking. You can lark anywhere. You can lark in a wood, in a field, uh, around your house larking is looking for me um my next book is a field guide to larking and it includes beach larking and mud larking and field walking and uh, searching your house and garden so it's all larking it's all looking it's the art of looking i suppose and then i realize this might be a dull question for you but legally what's the rules <laughs> yes there are rules I'll, I'll get into those um so when you're on the river thames you're on private land it belongs to the Port of London Authority and you need a permit to do it. It's That's not popular with everybody, but it's just, just the way it is. Um, I don't think they're that expensive if you look at how much it goes to, the, costs to go on the London Eye these days. Um, it lasts for three years. And um, on the Port of London Authority's website, there's also uh, maps that show you where you can and can't mudlark. There are um, scheduled monuments uh, where you're not allowed to mudlark at all. They're as protected as Stonehenge. Um, and there are places where you're not allowed to disturb the foreshore at all. So it's really important to look at the maps, work out where you can and can't go and just um, mudlark responsibly. Um, only take, don't take bags and bags of stuff. You only need a couple of clay pipe stems. You don't need a whole sack of them. You know, leave something behind for other people. It is finite. It will run out in the end. Um, so all I say to people is just mudlark responsibly. Report anything you find that's... Um, archaeologically significant or important uh, over 300 years old if it looks strange or unusual uh, you need to report it to the uh, fines liaison officer which is part of the portable antiquity scheme which is an amazing scheme being run by the british museum to record all the ownerless ownerless objects that are found in fields and beaches and rivers all over 
uh, England and Wales, and they've recorded well over a million objects. And it's really, really important that these things are recorded. It's part of our, our shared history and things need to be shared, not taken home and hidden in drawers or God forbid sold on eBay because it's actually illegal to sell anything that you find on the foreshore. It all belongs to the Port of London Authority, even if you take it home. They're very, very generous. They let you keep most of the things, but if they find out you're selling stuff, they're not going to be happy. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is there a, I mean, always with these kind of, um, what's the words, little kind of cliquey groups, there's probably internal politics and big views one way or another way. Is that true of mudlarks? Yes, it is. Uh, yes, there are cliquey groups. And, and I think, yeah, in any, any hobby, wherever you get cliquey groups, um, you, you get politics, don't you? And you get people who agree and disagree. Um, I've chosen, I don't go to the foreshore to gr- join a group or to meet other people. I'm very antisocial. Um, I go to the foreshore to get away from people, um, to get away from my children and my wife <laughs> and my, my work. I'll be completely honest. Um, so I don't go to the foreshore to go down there and meet loads of people. It's not my social life. I've got friends for that. Um, it's where I go for solitude. Um, but for some people, it, you know, they, they, they are members of groups. And, uh, and I, I think groups can sometimes bring out the worst in people. Um, you know, perfectly, perfectly nice people can turn into monsters when they're whipped up by other people. So, um, so yeah, it's unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, there, there is... There is politics on the foreshore. It, oddly, and I think, I mean, I'm not a metal detectorist, but I hear from other people I know who are detectorists. It's, it, there's a kind of similar, sim- I don't know if you've watched the detectorists on television. I have. <laughs> it, yeah, it, 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 people get very uh, proprietal about their patch. They don't like other people down there. Um, I suppose they think that they're taking all the treasure. I don't know. Um and and that kind of brings out I call it the, the golem element in people uh, they just don't like other people being there um, my book has encouraged more people to go down there which hasn't been popular with some people and certain groups and uh, certain people have have written unpleasant things about me and to me uh, which I think is also happens a lot just generally in social media there's a lot of people who um uh, can say all sorts of things, can't they, from behind a keyboard. Then when I actually see them face-to-face on the foreshore, they all they scuttle off in the opposite direction in their wellies. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, if they've got something to say to me, I wish they'd say it to my face. But, you know, there, there we go. But, you know, and also, you know, very, certainly very early on, I was, uh, there weren't many women doing it. Uh, I'm a woman in a, in a man's world, uh, quite a specific man's world, and that hasn't gone down particularly well although there's a lot more women doing it now which is brilliant certainly the old school mudlarks tend to be men of a certain age i mean that's <laughs> true of a lot <laughs> no well it's that's the modern world isn't it you know especially i come from the sort of climbing mountaineering world where you could have just given the same you know one minute kind of conversation and just taken it and applied it to that world too but there's, there's a definite demographic. There's a definite demographic of people who want to own a subject, want to own what they do, and they don't like what they see as incomers. Yeah, and it's a subject I talk about a lot, so I'm not going to rattle on about it again today, but it comes down to identity, doesn't it? You know, when somebody, when a mudlark is who and what they are, and them and their friends with beards and bald heads wander about on the foreshore, and I, I fall into that group, I should clarify. Um, but... <laughs> That's who and what they are, and you're getting in the way of that. And there's new people there, and they wear bright clothes, and they don't play by the same rules. And yes, yeah. yes, it's yes, it's it's 
it's odd. I mean, my, the, the, I think the most my most recent dissenter is accusing me of being a champagne mudlark and encouraging too many middle class people onto the foreshore. I wasn't aware there was a uh, socioeconomic demographic that was allowed to mudlark, but there we go. It seems serious. <laughs> yeah, well, you're always gonna you're always going to find. I mean, you've put yourself out there. You're in the public eye, you know, regardless of whether that's in a big way or a small way, and so. You accidentally become a spokesperson for a subject. I assume. I mean, here you are now. That probably yes, doesn't... yes. And I mean, I mean, yeah. That's what my wife said when the book came out. She said, "You stuck your head above the parapet. What do you expect?" And it's absolutely true. You know that people will take pot shots at me. I'm, I'm an easy target. Um, fine. It really doesn't bother me. Yeah, I, I said this a few times as well. But one percent of people will love what you do. One percent will hate it, and ninety-eight percent just don't care. Best thing to do is just crack <laughs> on and enjoy the world. And yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you feel about the ethics of it? You know, like you say, it's a finite resource. There are only so many miles of Thames. Where does this go and where does it end? And Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I collect objects from the surface is because it's it doesn't damage the foreshore. You know, if I don't pick that object up on that tide, it's going to wash away or it's going to be damaged. Um, so I feel what I'm doing is genuinely rescuing objects from from just being destroyed um so i think that is responsible mudlarking i don't think digging five foot holes in the foreshore is responsible mudlarking these days i think we're beyond that now um there are there is a small group of people who have permission to do that although their the depth to which they should dig has been reduced significantly i think to three foot they are still digging too deep um, and when you dig the foreshore, when you go down onto it, it's very hard and compact. Um, it, it's basically made up of, of rubbish, especially in central London. It's been poured into the foreshore behind revetments and packed down to provide a flat surface for barges to sit on. Because, as you probably know, rivers are V-shaped in their natural, in their natural way. Um, and so what they've done is brought them up into a flat. Um, and they did that in the 18th and 19th centuries, and they used all sorts of things to pour into there. And so when you dig into this very hard substrate, you're weakening it, um, you're making it soft. And so when the, the river is constantly trying to reclaim itself, to turn itself back into its natural form, a V-shape. And so that's why we find so much is erosion. So what it's doing is it's finding these soft spots and it's eroding into them. And it's scooping it out like butter, really. And once it's scooped out that area, the columns that haven't been dug into collapse. And so these huge areas are just eroding and just vanishing. The other problem is they, they'll do it on a tide. They have to do it quickly. Um, they use metal detectors. They're looking for metal, mainly. They're damaging a huge amount, smashing through. You know, you've got to dig a sort of five, six-foot hole in a tide and fill it back in again before the tide comes in. You haven't got much time to search it properly. They're missing things that aren't metal. They're damaging things that are very fragile. Um, and I think it's unnecessary. The, the, the river, the mud is anaerobic. It, it preserves things perfectly. It, there's no oxygen. So you can pull things out of the mud um, that dropped in there 800 years ago and it'll be as perfect as the day it was dropped. If you leave it there, it's less there for, for future generations. It's something there for people in the future to find instead of frantically searching for stuff now, anything you can find quickly. I, I just think it's wrong. I think it needs to stop. This is something else that makes me unpopular with certain people and, and, and encourages the trolls. Um, but I'm not going to shut up about it and I'm not going to go away. I've seen the damage it's doing and I think it's wrong. I think as well, it's interesting when you said that it's finite. I mean, I would deliberately and from a friendly perspective contest that and say you know the shoe that was dropped 500 years ago would have been no interest of no interest to somebody who found it a week later but to us it's amazing and you know a nike trainer that gets dropped in whenever it is you know last week in 500 years that's going to be amazing for somebody to find that so we're, yeah, especially we're right i hadn't really yeah yeah i was only really thinking about the old things but you're absolutely right the stuff we're dropping in which is a lot um <laughs> Is, is of no interest to, to me. It's just rubbish. But yeah, you're right. People finding it in 500 years, that's their treasure, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, a Walker's salt and vinegar crisp bag from 1986. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. But do you know what? That's going to be around in 10,000 years' time, isn't it? Well, yeah, that exactly. Yeah that's, yeah. yeah, that's a whole different conversation. So, I mean, I, I obviously have to ask. It's the big kind of 
buzz question, obviously, but what have you found that's exciting? Gosh, I found so much stuff. Um, Crikey. Last year, I've been searching for 20 years for a medieval pilgrim badge, um, and I've never found, I found bits of them. Um, And then last year, I found one. It's St. Osmond of Salisbury. And it's it was it's probably dates from around the 1500s, and it was brought back from uh, from the shrine of St Osmond in Salisbury by a pilgrim and thrown into the Thames. And it's it's almost perfect. It's absolutely beautiful, and it matches the one that they have on display at at Salisbury Cathedral. I haven't been there yet, um, and they think an expert at the British Museum thinks that it probably was made in the same mould. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, and I'm, that was my find of the year last year. I have got what the, the things that I find really are rubbish. You know, they're rubbish. They're not things that you're going to, most of the things aren't the things you're going to find in museums. You know, I, yes, no, no, not yesterday, day before yesterday, I found another pinner's bone. And those are just the cut down bones that they use to, to sharpen and polish handmade dress pins. Um, something like that is very broken. There's hard, not much left of it, but, um, it's the third one I found, and they're just so special. Just that, 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 just holding it, just knowing that somebody held that, used it until it broke down to nothing and threw it away, is just is just amazing. Um, I mean, incredible things I've found. I've got the ivory. It's, it's made of ivory. It's the it's a it's a chape, which is the hard bit from the end of a sword scabbard that would have belonged to a Roman auxiliary soldier. That's beautiful. Uh, there's only been one complete version found in this country. Uh, so that's quite unusual. Roman hairpins, uh, a Tudor child's Tudor shoe, perfect condition. Uh, a box hinge, a bone box hinge from a Roman box that's still got the wooden dowel going through the middle, which is incredible. Uh, I found that last year. Um, amazing things. I'm not so interested in coins unless they've been scratched on or, or made had holes made in them or have been used for something else. Then they get interesting. But I mean, a coin's a coin, isn't it? It just says what it says on the tin. So I'm not a great sort of coin collector, but um, I like the coins that are a bit different. They've got, got bits on. I found a, a nice uh, Georgian coin with, with stamps all over it the other day. So yeah, so that was nice. Gosh, it's children's toys. They're great to find. Little pewter toys from the uh, uh, 17th century. Uh, they're really nice. I've got a few of those now. Um, so yeah, but to be honest, it's not the actual. It is the objects. They're beautiful. It's it's the it's the moment you find it. That's the that's that's the hit I get. You know, if I if I was a you know, it, it, I don't know. It's it's not the owning the objects because I don't consider myself to be the owner. I don't consider them to be mine. They're not my things. I'm just the next person in a long line of custodians to look after it and the next link in its chain of history i'm not it's not mine i'm not its owner it's an object in its own right it'll go on beyond me hopefully Um, it's that moment the 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 thrill for me is that moment you find a thing Um, and i can i can find get that thrill find it put it in my bag it can stay in my bag for weeks a bit forgotten which is a bit embarrassing because i got my hit I got my hip and I found it. Um, and then I'll take it out and clean it up and look at it and do the research and everything. But the, the real hit, that real sort of um, first drag on the fag is is when I actually spot it and pick it up. That's it. I mean, it, it, do you think that's primal or do you think it's learnt behaviour? You know, is it is it a gatherer instinct? Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're all hunter-gatherers, aren't we? Still, it's what it's totally primal. It's in our to a greater or lesser extent it's in our um it's in our psyche you know who hasn't who can walk on a beach and not look down and pick something up everybody does it and can guarantee um the most hardened urbanite will still walk along a beach and pick something up um and it's what we're trained to do to survive some people i think it's stronger in others some people are i think better mudlarks just because maybe it hasn't gone (laughs) so much um you know, some people just have the eye for it. They just, you have to relax. You have to clear your mind to mudlark. You can't be thinking about hundreds and hundreds of things. You can't be doing it quickly. You've got to slow down. It makes you slow down and just got to relax. Um, so, yeah, definitely primal. Definitely. It's, you know, it, it's we're looking for berries and nuts, really. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, but then it changes, right? So that's what's fascinating for me is that, you know, it obviously started as a child and then you move to London and you go down there just because you're curious and then you start finding things. So how much of your mudlarking personally takes place in books and research and the internet? And how important is that? Oh, a good, a good amount. I mean, it's great when you discover this, this mystery object that you've had for years and you suddenly discover it's, it's the, you know, it, it held a perch on a, on a sparrow bottle, for example. I found this strange bit of pottery and it's actually a lug <laughs> from a bottle they used to make um, and hang under the eaves of houses to encourage sparrows to nest in them. And then they used to steal their babies and make pies out of them. And so discovering something like that is just a whole part of history that you just didn't know existed. And no, people ate baby sparrows. It's so horrific. And the bit of pottery I've got is tiny, but it would have just held a stick so that that was the perch for the sparrow to, to perch on before it went in the bottle. Um, you know, we should have those bottles now and not eat the babies, obviously. But, you know, if we, every house had one, we'd have a lot more sparrows, wouldn't we? Yes, I mean, I, I love reading. I love reading. Um, I love reading about the past. Um, I love visiting museums. My family don't so much. Uh, so, so yes, a lot of it is. It's different. It's not that hit. It's not that thrill of actually finding it, picking up. Then it's a more sort of slower, more sort of in, it's it's the interest. Then um, it's a, a more sort of gradual um, dawning of information, I suppose. Yeah. So. Outside of, you know, you said earlier, I'm not an archaeologist, I can't claim that. So removing politics and what you are or aren't allowed to be, do you consider yourself a, a historian or an archaeologist or all of the above? I am. Um, I'm definitely not a historian. I know historians, they're brilliant people and they've devoted their lives to studying uh, history and they spend a lot of time in libraries. That's not me. Um, I am not an archaeologist because they have spent years of their lives uh, and I did archaeology for my subsidiary subject at university and failed it. Um, so I'm definitely not an archaeologist. I am, I am just a searcher. I think just a curious person, a searcher. Um, some people call, some mudlarks say they're amateur archaeologists. I'm not an amateur archaeologist. I'm just interested in everything. I'm a searcher and a looker and a collector of weird stuff that I find. I have this big thing about the difference between an amateur and a professional. And it changed recently when, you probably know this, but amateur comes from Latin amor, to, for the love. And the difference between amateur and professional, you know, linguistically, is that one gets paid and one's for the love of it. So I don't know, we use this term amateur like it's a sort of a subclass, like it's the tear down. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if it is at all. I mean, that was going to be one of my questions is, are you a professional mudlark? Because you've now made it your career, I guess. Do you know, there are people out there that would say I'm not a mudlark. I don't, I, I'm not allowed to use the word mudlark because I'm not a member of a certain society. Um, and I definitely don't have a certain permit. But yes, I'm definitely a mudlark. I, I lay claim to that um, with pride. Um, professional mudlark? No. Amateur mudlark. If you're using amateur in the way for the love, um, maybe an amateur mudlark. I, I would say a professional mudlark, someone who does it for the money. Someone who does it, the people 150 years ago were professional mudlarks. They had to do it for the money. I'm an amateur mudlark. That's a really nice way to look at mm. it. So, and again, it's a boring linguistics thing or um, semantics, but... The way I always understood it, because I, I looked into it years and years and years ago, and maybe I'm totally wrong, is that you have to like do an apprenticeship to be part of a society or to be a proper mudlark and get a proper permit. And I use that big inverted commas. Is that right? No. <laughs> no, there, there is a society. It's a society of mudlarks, which is, they limit the numbers. I think it's limited to about 50 people. Um, and it's just a one in, one out when one of them dies or leaves they let someone else in um and it's 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 generally you know you can only get in if you know someone there it's very limited to the, the sort of type of people a lot of them are metal detectorists um mainly men and i think there might be a couple of women 
Um, so it's a it's a self-regulating one in one out club. So it's got nothing to do with whether you are, you know, your your passion or your abilities or your the amount of time you've been doing it. Um, I know lots of mudlarks who've been doing it for a lot longer than certain members of the Society of Mudlarks, and they have no desire or interest in joining the club. So, um, so yes, it's just a, it's a club that likes to set themselves, I, I suppose, above everyone else or apart. I don't know. I don't know. There again, it goes back down to clubs. If you if you're a sort of person who likes to join a club, if it makes you feel that that makes you better than other people, then maybe you join it. I don't know. Yeah, and some people, I guess, it is. It's so personal. Some people like to do things on their own. Some people don't need the validity, and some people just like they're extroverts they want to be part of something right they like company yeah I think for a lot of people it gives them company and and you know you get to meet up with other people who are interested in it and that's that's great that's absolutely great um I don't think though that anyone who's not in it should be seen as a lesser anyone lesser there is a temptation among some of them some of them to look down on the people who aren't um and to consider them more better than the people who you know which is odd I think very strange. I think fair enough. If you want a club, have your club, but don't, you know, sort of inflict it, inflict your opinions on other people. So, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the members of the society, matter, they're lovely. They're really nice people. Um, you know, you get rotten apples in every barrel, don't you? Do you ever travel to Mudlock? So do you think, oh, I quite fancy that river in Italy or? No, I don't because I don't need to. I mean, I, I, li- I live within easy distance of, um, the best place in the world to mudlark. You know, I I I I I I run these 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 social media pages, and I hear from people all over the world who who, who mudlark on different rivers, and nobody finds the stuff that we find in London. Um, they find some interesting things, different things, um, but really that nowhere compares to London. So so no, not really. Um, yeah, you know, there are places I, I like. When, whenever I go somewhere, I, I, I like to have a poke around. Um, but nowhere I'd specifically go off to look at, I don't think. I think, uh, although, if I could get down into one of the um, canals in Amsterdam, that would be great. I think that's somewhere I'd like to, if I could actually, it, you know, get into somewhere that had been drained, if I knew it had been drained and they invited me. Yes, of course, I'd rush, rush out there, but no, no. 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 <laughs> Do you think it's the geography, just the way that it's laid out and the fact, obviously, the rich history? Rich history and the tides, you know, tidal. And also I've got a connection with London. You know, I've got connection. I have ancestors that worked on the river. I've got that connection. You know, f- for me, I can, I can imagine them there using these things. So there is a actual psychology behind it as well in that respect. Um, you know, I'm not French or Dutch or German. I'm English. I'm, my, my family came from London. That's, that makes sense for me to go there. And do you think it's become who and what you are? Yes, I think it has. I think it has. I mean, I've, I've obviously written a book about it. And um, yes, I get to do it a lot now, which is great because now I can justify it. No, my wife can't complain. She does, but she can't really complain <laughs> about me vanishing off to the river. So I, I feel less guilty about vanishing off to do it because it's kind of it's what I do now. <laughs> I guess. I think the what's I've actually got it written down. What did you write? I have lied, cajoled, and manipulated to get time by the river. Yes, I've been late for so many meetings. I've had to leave so many meetings early. Um, yeah, yep, yeah, I. I usually, I very often stink of river when I turn up to a meeting. Uh, I have, I have. I did get caught out once um, when I, she thought I was supposed to be working. And uh, I, I had an office that was when the kids had just been born. So I had an office outside the house so that I could concentrate. And I, as far as Sarah's concerned, I was working. She went for a walk with the pram, saw me walking along the river. So I got busted, totally busted. And I just got a text. I can see you. <laughs> yeah. God, that's, well, clearly long-suffering and highly understanding. Very understanding. Yeah, she's a saint. 
And so you said your kids aren't interested, not bothered. One is. One is, one not, absolutely not, isn't, hasn't got the right, isn't, just is not, hasn't got the patience for it. Um, I, I've got twins, so um, my son is not interested in the least, gets as bored as, as my wife. And, uh, but my daughter has, does like it. And uh, we went off to our first antiques fair on the weekend. So she's, she's got the bug. Um, and uh, yeah, she's got quite a nice little collection of shells and, and glow. I don't take her down onto the river yet because it's, it's not really a great place for kids. It's, as I say, raw sewage. Um, the wakes from the, from the boats can be quite big and you can't get a, a permit until you're 12. So the PLA don't like kids going down there. I totally agree. Um, so I don't take her onto the river yet, but I will do. I will do soon. I'm going to um, train her. She'll be my little apprentice. There you go. Would you encourage people to do this? Absolutely. I would, yes. Um, in fact, my next book does encourage people to do it. Yes, as I say, I would encourage people to do it responsibly. Uh, most people, a lot of people don't want to. A lot of people don't want to get muddy. They're quite happy reading about it, following me on social media, uh, and they, they love that. Some people, they'll go down once or twice. That'll be enough for them. Um, and some people get the bug and they'll keep going back again and again and again. Uh, those people are relatively few. But yes, I definitely encourage people. It's, it's hands-on history. It, it, you know, it's, it's real history. It's about the real people who made the city, not these people you read about in books, um, monarchs and, and lords and, and army commanders. They're the real people who just lived every day and made London and lost their stuff and um, got sad and threw rings into the river and love tokens and it's filled with stories it will light up your imagination the river will calm your nerves it'll take away the modern world uh, and it will make living in London a lot easier <laughs> do you still get out of it what you always did or has the work and the writing tainted that no, I still do. I still get very excited. I still have a, a, a very um, complicated preparation routine the night before. Um, and I plan my trips in advance and I get very excited about going. I, I, I love it. I have still absolutely love it. Um, and I choose my spot according to my mood. Um, so if I'm in a quiet mood, I'll go somewhere I won't see other people. If I'm feeling a bit more sociable, I go more centrally. Um, because people do tend to recognise me a bit now. So I do get this sort of interrupted a bit, which is fine, which is lovely. I like talking to people, but if I don't want to be interrupted, I go somewhere else. <laughs> what scares you? Physically? Uh, you can interpret that question however you want. Uh, deep mud, the tide coming in, me getting stuck in deep mud. And watching the tide slowly creeping up to me, that scares me. That really scares me um, because I go to some very remote places. I always go with someone else. Um, I would never go on my own, but uh, the, the, I can see that happening, um, getting stuck in mud and the tide coming in slowly scares me. Um, what scares me? Not a lot scares me, actually. I'm not easily scared. Um, scares me. A glaring error, error in one of my books scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Making a really horrible mistake is quite scary. It's either physical, isn't it? Like getting stuck in the mud, which is terrifying. Because there's, there are places I go where I know there's, there's bomb craters filled with mud. And if you go in one of those, you'll just disappear. Um, and then there's... Obviously, a psychological fear, isn't there? There's the fear that you have for your children of the world going tits up and, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not easily scared. I try not to think about scary things. What brings you hope? What brings me hope? The future brings me hope. I think the future will be good. I'm hopeful about the future. I think ultimately human beings are good and we're all striving for for good and I think the future will be good there you go that's a wonderful positive finish
we'll call it there. Thank you very much. That was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Kate Bullivan and Alex Hall. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.